And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Friday, July 29th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. A potentially busy weekend on the waiver wire because the MLB trade deadline is just around the corner, 6 o'clock Eastern on Tuesday. August 2nd is the magic date this year, but that means there are lots of opportunities right now to speculate on possible trades, to get a possible discount in leagues that use FAB. So if you got questions for us over the course of the next hour, feel free to drop those in the chat if you're watching us live. Most weeks we go live at 4 o'clock Eastern on the Athletic Fantasy YouTube page. Al, let's get to it first with the player in Detroit who's finally starting to look like the guy that many people thought he'd be at the beginning of the season. It's Jamer Candelario, really since the start of July, has been a very productive player with a 281 370, 547 line during that span. He's popped five homers. The counting stats alongside that are good. And third base has been a bit of a trouble spot, especially in deeper mixed leagues throughout this season. So I'm curious how aggressively you want to pursue Jamer Candelario in situations where he's available. In 15-teamers, I definitely want to make uh, my my best effort to try to add Candelario. uh, And He's been very, very hot for, like you said, the, the month of July, but especially about the last three weeks or so. And not that I'm expecting him to keep that up for the final two months of the season, but it's more just kind of confirmation that the the version of him that we saw in 2020 and 2021, who was somebody who wasn't necessarily somebody that you were going to roster or start in 12 teamers, but definitely anything deeper. He was somebody who was really must a must roster, a must start that I think you could start treating him that way again. So I'm not saying that there's no relevance at all for 12 teamers. I think it's more of uh, you know maybe a long schedule or a good schedule in a given week, but in in leagues that have more than 12 teams, he's just somebody that needs to be plugged in and, and started every week once again. Yeah, brings a good bit to the table for those corner infield spots at this point. I think the Tigers, as much as they've struggled offensively, they could be better than terrible as a team in the final two months, and it wouldn't be that surprising, right? They didn't have Riley Green for most of the first half. They could bring Spencer Torkelson back from Toledo. Javier Baez could be a bit better. Candelario could be a bit better than he was. So I think the types of players they're moving at the deadline aren't necessarily going to make their their lineup so bad that the counting stats for players like Candelario are going to fall off a cliff. He's already in a bad situation. There's really nowhere to go but up if you think about how things have gone for this Tigers team to this point. Uh, Bryson Stott, I think, is worth mentioning. A lot of the players we're going to talk about today are in the outfield because, well, there's three times as many outfielders as there are players other positions. I think that's where a lot of playing time is more fluid anyway. But Bryson Stott has second base and shortstop eligibility. The season-long numbers don't look great on the surface, but his more recent performance has been a big step in the right direction. And even without Bryce Harper, this is a good supporting cast around him in Philadelphia. So uh, what is changing with your interest level in Bryson Stott lately? Uh, I'd say the number one thing, if I had to just boil it down to to one factor, it's that he's just not striking out much. And this has been about two solid months where Stott is striking out just a little bit more than in 10% of his plate appearances, which is pretty astounding uh, given that it was closer to maybe uh, every three out of 10 plate appearances earlier in the season. So just by virtue of that, he's giving himself a chance to take care of uh, or rather take advantage of Citizens Bank Park. Uh, We see more power from Stott the last couple of months. It's not a lot, but again, enough to to make make a difference, make him worth starting in 14, 15 team leagues. And I wrote in the the, uh, the waiver wire column this week. I think even in twelve team leagues, maybe not like standard five by five roto, but points leagues because he's not striking out very much and he is walking a good a good amount. That between those things and the ability to to produce runs in Citizens Bank Park, uh, I think all that combined actually makes him relevant in twelve teamers uh, with a with a points league format. 
So he's gone from somebody that I've just, I've looked at that total stat line with, you know, the batting average below 200 and very little power and looked at, at what he's done the last couple of months and and now really viewing him as somebody who's kind of on the fringes of 12 team relevant. Yeah, the plate skills since June 1st, I mean, they are really good. 10% walk rate to go along with an 11.2% K rate, seven homers and 170 plate appearances for Bryson Stott, closer to a league average sort of player during that time. And league average players in good lineups tend to be useful for us in those leagues that you described. As it stands right now, and I expect a lot to change between Friday afternoon and Sunday night when pickups actually run in a lot of leagues, but I expect Kyle Isbell to be one of the more coveted bats out there in deeper mixed leagues especially the Royals are getting a bit healthier we just saw Salvador Perez get activated from the IL earlier today on Friday and the alignment has Kyle Isbell in center field Nick Prado is playing a corner outfield spot I believe Hunter Dozier is in the other corner right now the Royals are probably not done making trades though I think as they move closer to the deadline the hold that Isbell has on at least a big side platoon role is probably going to get stronger I like what he brings to the table in terms of tools. I know he hasn't shown us a lot at the big league level just yet, uh, but do you believe in the tools actually coming through over the final two months now that the playing time path looks like it could stabilize a bit for Isbell? I really do. And he's really one of the more puzzling players when you try to reconcile what the fantasy stats are, what those top line stats are, and some of the underlying stats. The one number that I kind of double and triple took when I saw it because it just didn't match up with what he'd done. His average exit velocity on flies and liners this year is over 96 miles an hour. That's almost elite. And it's not like he's, you know, a Yandy Diaz who can, you know, put up a number like that, but it's not going to translate to power stats because he's got a, you know, 55, 60% ground ball rate. He's got a 45% or 46% ground ball rate. So that's pretty close to normal. And it just seems like the relative... I wouldn't even say relative, the lack of power that Isbell has shown so far, uh, it just, it's very misleading. So I think you've got a real shot here with the playing time increase for Isbell to be a true power speed uh, combination threat. And we've seen it in the minors too. He can contribute as a base stealer. I mean, last season at AAA Omaha, it was 105 games, stole 22 bases in 27 attempts. So I think there'll be plenty of green lights for him in the second half of, of the season as well. There's no no reason why the Royals wouldn't let him run if he's getting on base at a higher clip. But yeah, the underlying stat cast numbers in terms of the quality of the contact that he makes, um, even just athleticism and defense too, right? His sprint speed is above average in the 69th percentile, max exit velo in the 76th percentile, outs above average 94th, and outfielder jump 100th percentile. So players like that, tend to get a long look when you're going through a stretch where you're not necessarily competing for this year, but teams are trying to figure out what they have in the future. I think Kyle Isbell is the kind of player where the Royals want to figure that out sooner rather than later. So I would not be surprised if his role grows a lot as they continue to pare down some of the veterans on that roster in Kansas City. But even if they were to kind of stand pat with their position players, I think he'd still play quite a bit with the current group of players they now have healthy a similar situation seems to be developing in Cincinnati. I don't think Jake Fraley is quite as interesting from a stat cast perspective as Kyle Isbell, but you want to give me someone with power and speed, a lot of playing time at Great American Ballpark, and I'm interested. And we've already seen Tyler Naquin get flipped. He's probably not the only position player the Reds are going to trade. Brandon Drury seems almost a certainty to get dealt. I would expect Tommy Pham to probably get traded somewhere as well. So I think Fraley is going to be among the players that are going to play a lot for this Reds team in the final two months. Yeah. And, you know, with as many players as the Reds are rumored to be moving, it's a little disappointing that they don't have more, uh, a greater number of interesting players to move into what are expected to be vacancies. I think Fraley probably is the most interesting, the one who most likely would have some fantasy relevance, maybe even in 12 teamers, uh, but definitely 14, 15 teamers. Uh, you have to like the environment of him uh, hitting in Great American Ballpark. Uh, so, yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think that Isbell is probably overall a little bit more interesting, but. Uh, but yeah, Fraley certainly somebody who'd be, be worth bidding on this weekend. And Fraley in the past has shown at least an above average max exit velo, above average sprint speed. He hasn't really been healthy this year, just came off the 60-day IL, not starting against a righty on Friday. But keep an eye on things over the weekend because if the Reds clear out more position players, 
Fraley would be among the next to see an increased opportunity. Another player coming off of the injured list, another outfielder that I think could see his role change a little bit between now and the deadline is Taylor Trammell in Seattle. And Trammell's been moved a couple times himself, so maybe it's another trade uh, to a clearer opportunity. Maybe it's another outfielder in Seattle getting moved, so the playing time floor comes up for Taylor Trammell. And I'm looking at him as the kind of player that really does pretty much everything well. I think his categorical liability is likely in the batting average department, but even if you go back to AAA last season, Trammell started to pull the ball less frequently. He was using the whole field more often. I think that gives him a higher batting average floor if he maintains that approach. And so far in the big leagues this year, we've seen that hold up. It might cost him a little bit of power ceiling, but I think he's a really well-balanced player that especially as part of a above-average Seattle lineup could actually surprise us in the final two months. Well, the thing that you said a little bit earlier about him, you know, maybe he would be a player that's on the move and it, it, it's, you know, I mean, we don't get to, to make those decisions. We don't have any control over where Trammell might wind up playing, but uh, it might be a better thing for him to go elsewhere because I do like that profile of him being able to contribute across the board. He was really starting to to get hot uh, right before he got injured. And now I'm just not sure that he's going to be a player that the Mariners are going to play every day uh, as they're in a playoff push. So we'll see how it all shakes out. But if whether it's in Seattle or elsewhere, if Trammell is in a situation where he's going to be playing close to close to every day, then he's somebody who needs to be rostered deeper than 12 teams and at least watch list, I would say, for 12 team, 12 team leagues. Yeah, Kyle Lewis now back from the injured list. So he has at least some kind of semi-regular role. We're seeing a good bit of Sam Haggerty right now. So one of those guys would have to play less once Trammell comes off the IL, barring a trade or some other sort of development that changes the look of that depth chart in Seattle. Uh, J.J. Blade came up on last week's show and came up again on Tuesday when we were talking about some of the prospects that had recently debuted. Just kind of curious in leagues where he's still out there, how does Blade stack up to some of these other outfielders that people are thinking about this weekend? Do you see him being on the same sort of level, even though the production might be a little more tilted from the power categories? Right. Well, that's a key thing because unlike somebody like Isbell or, or Trammell, uh, Blade is going to be somebody who is going to really help you in in home runs, most likely, maybe run production, really could hurt you in batting average. So uh, I'd say because of that, he's maybe just a, a half step below uh, the, the few outfielders that we just talked about beforehand. But if if you do have the need for power, if you have uh, room to you know make make some moves up the, the home run standings uh, with uh, you know somebody who can come in and, and uh, if it's bunchy and somebody can push you up a few few places in the standings, I think Blade could be. Uh, maybe a, a better target than some of these other players because he very much has a all-in-for-power kind of profile. We saw it at double-A, triple-A. We've seen it in a very, very small sample so far with the Marlins. A lot of fly balls, pulls the ball a lot. Uh, it hurts his batting average, but uh, you know, already we've he's got four base hits and three of them are for extra bases. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the approach you're going to get from Blade most of the time. A slight batting average liability, but above average power potential and plenty of opportunities in and around the heart of that Miami lineup, too, just given their needs offensively. David Peralta seems like one of the most certain players to get traded in the next 72 hours or so. It probably leaves Jake McCarthy with a larger role. We talked about him a bit on Tuesday, and I guess the other player everyone wants to talk about in Arizona is Corbin Carroll. Would they promote him for the final two months of the season? I don't want to talk people out of using a bench spot for a week on Corbin Carroll because on the off chance that the Diamondbacks decide to promote him, he could be a huge difference maker the rest of the way. He's tooled up. He looks like he's big league ready. At the same time, we know club control matters to teams. We know Corbin Carroll lost a lot of time to a shoulder injury last season. I don't think the Diamondbacks need to give him time at AAA, but I think they will continue to give him time at AAA and probably play someone like McCarthy or even Dominic Fletcher, who's currently in Reno right now, instead of debuting Carroll. So what are you doing with this situation? Are you stashing Carroll anywhere? Or if you are, is it in mixed leagues, NL only leagues? What kind of format would you be interested in him in? I have not yet stashed Carl anywhere, but I think that this is the weekend to do it if there's not. Well, obviously, if there is a move made between now and Sunday, you absolutely have to try to get uh, Corbin Carroll. But I think um, 
if things are status quo and we're still having this guessing game of uh, how are the Diamondbacks going to fill their outfield uh, after the deadline, I think you got to now's the time because if they do call Carroll up, then yeah, people are just going to be emptying out their fab to get them and rightfully so. So I think while there's still some uncertainty, I think it's worth it to, you know, again, not, not empty out your fab, but maybe make like a 3% bid, two and a half, three percent bid and see if that'll sneak under, see if that'll fly. Uh, because if he does get called up, he could be possibly the biggest impact ad from here on out. Uh, he, he hasn't skipped a beat at all going from double A AA to triple A. He does look major league ready. He would have no playing time concerns whatsoever. So uh, the other side of this, as you mentioned, Jake McCarthy, uh, he's the the safety play. I mean, he's almost certainly going to be playing almost every day after Peralta's dealt. And I mean, I think we're both talking about that as a, a when and not an if. And uh, so I think Mark McCarthy is going to play one way or another and obviously much lower ceiling than, than Corbin Carroll. But there's some power there. Uh, it hasn't really availed itself to the extent uh, that it did in the minors so far in his time with, with Arizona, but just picked him up in two score sheet leagues this week in supplemental drafts. I, I like him as a, like a, a fourth outfield type in, in those leagues and um, will likely be putting some bids on him in, in uh, standard fantasy leagues this weekend. Yeah, Jake McCarthy, 99th percentile in sprint speed, too, so could run a bit and maybe provide some steals on the bottom of your roster if he gets an enhanced opportunity once David Peralta is traded. Not a certainty, but I think, yeah, it seems like it's almost a certainty at this point. Uh, what are you doing with Nelson Velasquez? Already getting some time in the outfield for the Cubs. There's a possibility that Ian Happ is among the Cubs on the move. I know Wilson Contreras, they've already had the hug ceremony. We've talked about that on a few different shows over the course of this week, and Velasquez has the interesting tools we're looking for, especially in terms of raw power and the ability to barrel up the ball, but it also comes with a good bit of swing and miss. At the same time, we know that the Cubs are somewhat tolerant of that in a profile. I think Patrick Wisdom and the extended run he's had as a regular for them maybe gives us a little bit of hope that they'd be patient with someone like Velasquez if they have a spot for him. And I think if they trade Hap, that they will have a spot for him. Uh, I included Velasquez, or actually I take that back. I did not include Velasquez in the waiver column this week, but I I did want to talk about him here because if uh, Hap goes, I think that Velasquez has a full-time job. And then there's that profile that you just talked about, that if you need power, uh, there's a lot of it. Probably a very similar set of contributions that you would get from J.J. Blade probably uh, a lower ceiling there. So between the two of them, given that Bladé's playing time is, as of right now, looking much more certain. Uh, and I think that there's uh, maybe a little bit more of an opportunity there for, for some, some batting average help. Uh, very little at that, but uh, I, I give a little bit of an edge to Bladé, but I think there's very similar appeal with these, with both of these players. Even with the high probability of growing pains, I do think Nelson Velasquez is the kind of guy you want to see playing a lot in the second half if you're a Cubs fan because you want to see what he might bring to the table and whether or not he's a fixture in that lineup for 2023 and beyond. I think there's one more outfield situation to look at. Two guys that have been really going through some difficulties this season. Miguel Andujar not really having a spot to call his own with the Yankees and then Joey Gallo who just has not hit since going to the Bronx. It seems likely that at least one, if not both of those players, will be in a new organization after the deadline, especially with the Andrew Benintendi acquisition. It doesn't seem like that Joey Gallo is going to hang around. So totally different players because with Gallo, we've got a previous track record in the big leagues that spans more than one season where you can look at it and say, we kind of know what we think he's supposed to do. And then with Andujar, we go back, four years now, I think, to the first time we saw him at the big league level, and he actually was very productive at that opportunity. What's your interest level in these two players who you know could have completely different looking past the playing time just a few days from now? Well, even if there's regular play for Andujar, I wouldn't really see him as somebody uh, to target outside of 15 teamers and deeper. Uh, but with Gallo, because of what you mentioned in terms of a very extended track record of power production, uh, possibly for OBP, even though you can't not, not only can't count on him for batting average, but kind of have to absorb the hit that you're likely to get batting average, but pretty much, uh, you know, power run production. Uh, that's something that you can hope for from, from Joey Gallo. And we, uh, Michael Beller and I talked about him on the, the Thursday edition of this show. And, 
you know, the conclusion that, that I reached there was that um, Gallo's just done. He's had that profile for, for too long to not think that if he has a change of scenery, that he can, he can revert to his former self. And that's a very useful fantasy player. Again, as long as you're able to absorb the hit in, in batting average, he's just been sort of a, a, in terms of profile, a caricature of himself this year, too many fly balls, too much pull, too much of a a batting average problem uh, and not enough power to make up for it. But I think that that could be maybe corrected with another organization. Yeah, and if you think about Duhar and what he did as a 23-year-old back in 2018, flirted with a 300 average, popped 27 homers that year, and did it with a 16% K rate. I know it's not a great OBP profile because he doesn't walk a lot, but this is a good enough hitter to play regularly somewhere. So I'm hoping he lands in a like a total playing time desert as we'll call it, I guess. That's good, a good spot to be for him. Oakland, like a place like that. A team that just says, you're a regular left fielder. You're a regular DH. We're just going to play you every single day and see what happens. If it's a good situation like that for Andujar, I think he becomes mixed league relevant again in pretty short order. Maybe Oakland's too extreme an example because the supporting cast is awful. Yeah. But you need a big swing in playing time for Andujar to actually like, give enough value to be used outside of mono leagues. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, The situation in Oakland behind the plate is, I think, worth discussing, too. Sean Murphy could be one of the best younger players traded at this deadline, given that the A's have a lot of catching depth. They have Shea Langeliers closing in on being big league ready. They drafted Daniel Susak in the first round this year. Tyler Soderstrom's in that system as well. Guessing at least one of those guys isn't an everyday catcher as they move through the system, but is Shea Langoliers worth speculating on right now? If you're in a 15-team, two-catcher league and catcher has been a problem for you, and maybe you're fine in the outfield where a lot of these these darts we're talking about at that position aren't necessarily going to help you, are you willing to take a, a flyer on Langoliers for a week and see if he gets the chance to play in Oakland? I absolutely am because especially with the kind of league that you're talking about, DVR, where 30 catchers are rostered, for the for a lot of people, probably for everybody, in terms of the second catcher, uh, Langoliers, if he does come up, he's he is going to be an upgrade, uh, or at least there's a very strong chance that he's going to be an upgrade. Uh, he does look close to, or maybe fully major league ready. If Sean Murphy's on the move, then he becomes uh, you know a, a primary catcher. If Sean Murphy's not on the move, I still think that maybe Langoliers gets called up and you have a, a, a Sal Perez, MJ Melendez type situation that would give uh, Langoliers enough value to be a number two catcher anywhere and just maybe a number one catcher in, in really deep leagues. Yeah, if they move Murphy, Langoliers could do enough to eventually be a single catcher league sort of player. I don't know if it'll happen by the end of the season, but I think that's the type of longer term ceiling that he actually brings to the table. Another outfielder in the comments here from Disco Dave is Alec Burleson in St. Louis worth an ad in case he gets traded. I mean, I kind of think he fits into this conversation. He's a little bit more like an Andujar type where he's pretty well blocked right now in St. Louis, a lot younger than Andujar at this point in his career. But it's been a nice step forward for him at AAA this year. Burleson hitting 332 with a 375 OBP and a 549 slugging percentage, so more than 40% above league average in terms of his overall offensive production. Yeah, and that's a great question, and I, I would say yes. Uh, I think that he's definitely 
worth bidding on in 14 and 15 team mixed leagues. Uh, definitely much more than a mono league player. Probably not quite a 12 teamer player. Uh, even if he goes somewhere, let's say like Oakland, where he clearly would, there'd be no reason for him not to play every day. I kind of imagine maybe like a Frankie Matas deal there, or, uh, you know, who knows? Um, a lot, a lot of places where he could go, but Burleson definitely needs to be unblocked. And I'm personally hoping like probably a lot of people are that he gets traded this, uh, this weekend. Send the blocked players to Oakland. They have a clear need for almost everything on the roster right now. And guys like Burleson can play a lot if they end up in a spot like that in the next few days. Uh, Casey wants to know, we're at the point where Nick Castellanos or Max Muncy are droppable. So I I guess we'll we'll put a, a league size response on this. And what types of leagues would you be thinking about that at this point? All right, well, I just recently wrote about this, so I'm, I'm totally prepared for this. Uh, I wrote that Muncie is definitely droppable in 12-teamers, so obviously that would mean 10-teamers too. I think anything deeper, uh, because he is still getting playing time, and because maybe, just maybe, there is the chance that Muncie figures it out over the last two months. But at, at, at this point, after almost four months, when you see no improvement and no really strong signs that improvement is coming, I think it's time to, you know, you, you can you can cut somebody like Muncie. Castellanos, I, I would still hold back. I did not include him in this droppables column uh, that, that was published about a week ago. Uh, I thought about it. He just missed the cut. I would be okay with dropping Castellanos in a 10-teamer, a though. I think if it's a 10 where you're starting three outfielders, he might be droppable, but I'm still somewhat optimistic that Castellanos can put together a, a decent two-month stretch. I think... The hit tool's always been good, even if the power was inflated by Great American Ballpark. He's still an above-average contributor in power. I, I, Muncy, I just think, is broken. He's just hurt. So in a shallow league, 10-team league especially, I'm willing to cut him there. A 12, I could probably justify that too. And a 15, I just feel like you're in a horrible spot with Max Muncy right now. That league's too deep to let, let him go, given the, the quality of the players around him in that lineup. Thanks a lot for that question, Casey. Let's get to some pitchers. I wanted to start with a shallow league trio question for you. Similarly rostered players on CBS right now, Braxton Garrett, we've discussed on this show probably three or four weeks running now, Dustin May, who's working through a rehab assignment right now, almost back with the Dodgers, and Aaron Ashby, who just signed an extension with the Brewers last weekend, I believe it was now, all rostered in about two-thirds of CBS League. So if you're looking for a pitcher to contribute in a shallow mixed league right now, and you're looking at some combination of these three and possibly all three being available in, in a league like that, how do you rank them? <laughs> That's really, really tough. I would go uh, I'd go Ashby, May, Garrett, but I, I, I hate putting Garrett at the bottom because uh, I, I like him a lot. Um, I, I like the fact that uh, you know pretty much any time he's pitching at home, uh, almost all the time, that's that's going to be a good environment. That's going to be a start where I'd feel pretty comfortable with him, even in 12-teamers. So, I, yeah, I would go Ashby, May, Garrett, but it's it's really close. Yeah, Ashby cruised last time out. Home start against the Rockies coming off that extension, 9Ks over seven innings. Even though the ratios for Ashby have been quite a bit worse than what Braxton Garrett has done so far, I would not be surprised if that flipped going forward. Matchups could be a short-term guide if you're looking at a problem like this. And I would leave May in between those two. I had same same order you have. I think you're still going to wait a little bit longer for May to come back. And then we don't really know how exactly they're going to make the pieces fit in Los Angeles. I wouldn't be surprised by a temporary six-man rotation. That would make sense just to kind of monitor the innings of a few different guys. Obviously, Andrew Heaney's had his share of arm issues, including this season. May coming off Tommy John, they may want to bring along slowly. They may want to preserve Kershaw for the postseason. So that sort of makes sense as one way that they could work around the crowd developing for their rotation. I wanted to ask you also about Reed Detmers for Shadow League purposes. I think I was all in on Detmers at the beginning of the season, and it was a frustrating first three months outside of that no-hitter. Goes down, finds the slider, comes back, has pitched really well, and some difficult matchups, too, since rejoining the Angels rotation. So how aggressively are you pushing to roster him in some of those more shallow formats where he might still be hanging on the waiver wire? Not very aggressively, uh, and the I was really all prepared to to go in uh, a second time, like you, DVR, uh, this year. Uh, and 
you know, I was buying into that that narrative of, you know, the sliders really making the difference. But at least in the, the first couple of starts back, he wasn't really getting that many swings and misses on the slider. So I, I, I'd like to see more. And probably by the time I see more and improve in, in, and improve in either right or wrong, it'll be too late. But that said, it does it does worry me a little bit. I just feel like maybe I could get tricked into bidding too much and not getting the results that I want. I think that new slider is making me a believer. You look at his last five starts now, six Ks or more each of those five times out. That includes starts against Atlanta on the road. I've got the Astros at home. It might have been when Jordan Alvarez was still not available. If I remember correctly, that was July 14th. So that was right before the break. I just I think he's a different pitcher now. I don't know why that pitch was elusive for him at the beginning of the season. I don't know if he's the kind of guy I'm trusting in all those matchups, if he catches Houston again on the road in the near future, but I do think he's more rosterable in shallow leagues now than he was, even when I liked him a lot back at the beginning of the season. I thought there was some uh, short-term concerns about Detmers, even though I wanted him in all the deeper mixed leagues that I play in. Let's get to some schedule-related pitchers to consider, and there are a bunch of them. I think we either say or imply this every single week. All of this is subject to change, and the traded line just messes up the schedule as much as really anything that we get all season long. Corbin Martin is back in the fold for Arizona, and it looks like he'll make a turn in the rotation against the Rockies. I don't want to give up on Martin just because I think the stuff is good. It's a pretty deep arsenal. I know Eno's pitching model continues to point to him as someone that could break through and actually be a pretty useful starter. I think Martin is best left for 15-team mixed leagues in deeper, Al, but just one of those guys that he's sort of lost all the prospect luster. He's come up a few times, got sent back down, hasn't had very good results, has had the deal with AAA Reno when he's been sent down. I think there's a little more here than the surface numbers would indicate with Corbin Martin. Perhaps, and I just think the fact that he may finally have an opportunity to stay up is is reason enough in deeper leagues to just let, let it fly and... Even if you're not comfortable with starting him right away, I think he's a good pitcher to just have have stashed for a couple of weeks to see how it all goes. Because like you, maybe not to the same degree DVR, but like you, I I still hold out hope that he's going to be that pitcher that we uh, hoped and, and thought he would be a, a year or two ago. Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic there's still going to be a, a nice run from him. Here's a really tough name to figure out. Jansen Junk getting a chance in the Angels rotation Great matchup with it being a home start coming up this week against Oakland. Nine Ks against one walk and just six big league innings so far. And he had a 40 to 11 strikeout to walk in 48 and two thirds at AAA Salt Lake. So pretty good performance overall in difficult circumstances. A longer term opportunity might be developing here because Noah Syndergaard could get moved. Shohei Otani could get traded. I don't think they'll actually do it, even though they probably should consider making a move like that. What do you think about Jansen Junk? Great name for a pitcher. And it's really more of a two-pitch mix, mostly fastball slider. So I don't know if he's going to be the kind of guy that consistently can give us five-plus innings. But I think in this spot against the A's, he's at least streamable. Maybe 15-team. Uh, yeah, I mean, the matchups don't really get better than that. So, um, and I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fun name. And it's really the worst name for a pitcher since Kyle Lobstein, I think. But, Kyle um, Lobstein, yeah. Bob but Walk's kind Bob of an Walk. all-time bad one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe some some streaming possibilities uh, with him. The, the numbers, the minors' numbers are decent, but not overwhelming. Uh, I think probably the the biggest thing in Junk's favor is just that there could be an opportunity for him to to stick in the rotation post deadline. But I think I, I'd probably be more interested than in Jose Suarez than Junk. But um, yeah, I'd say, you know, maybe a, a nominal bid in 15-teamers. Yeah, uh, very low bids on junk. Just someone to keep in mind if you're just looking to fill out the bottom of your group of pitchers for this week. Uh, what are you doing with Brad Keller? I still don't trust him. It's a two-start week, so I think even a skeptic like me would be interested here. At the White Sox, home against the Red Sox are the two matchups. Do you feel like he's turned a corner, or is this mostly the same Brad Keller we've seen for the better part of three and a half or four years now? I think it's the same Brad Keller, and every time that he has a good matchup or two starts, I go back and and I am looking for something and hoping I see something, and I I never do, so uh, I'm I'm staying away. 
Uncle Ted Talk says Homer Bailey was the worst pitcher name ever. I saw Homer Bailey throw a no hitter live. Oh, you were at two that in his game. career. I was at the. I, was, I think it was the second one. It was okay. the one he threw. He threw against the Giants at home, just before the Fourth of July, about I don't know seven or eight years ago on a road trip. Yeah, the only no hitter I've ever seen in person, but uh, very unexpected. And it seemed like most of the people in the ballpark weren't really aware of what was happening until we got to about the seventh or eighth inning. Strange. Fun fun thing to be at, though. Would love to see another one someday. Matt Manning is coming back for the Tigers. I know we're at the point now where there's probably some reduced expectations because Manning has struggled so much with injuries. When he's been healthy, he hasn't pitched like the guy we thought he'd be as a prospect. It's a two-start week, though, at Minnesota, home against the Rays. All the injuries that have piled up in the Tigers have left the door wide open for him to rejoin the rotation and stick, and even though these aren't necessarily easy matchups, Manning did get fully stretched out during his rehab assignment at Toledo, so you're not worried about him going short for injury purposes. And you know what else is kind of nice about what he did in that uh, stint at Toledo? No homers allowed in 20-plus innings. After giving up, I think it was 11 in 31 or something like that last year. Uh, So I'll take that as a sign of encouragement. I don't know that that Manning for me has any extra appeal because it's a two-start week. I think it's either you're intrigued by the the prospect pedigree and some of the the improvements. Like I said, no homers in the in the rehab stint. Um, the the fact, and this is something I, I wrote up in the the column this week that uh, he has been a strike thrower and he has that kind of profile that if he can just have decent command, he could be kind of a a, a Martin Perez, Cole Irvin type that churns out quality starts and you kind of live on the the high wire you live on the you know the um uh you live with a, a small margin of error but um you know maybe pays off for you uh, i i think maybe we could see that for manning over the last couple months yes yeah, another week where the widely available two-start pitchers are not particularly inspiring so that might make me more inclined to take that chance on on manning this week Antonio Senzatella, uh, among those two-start pitchers that are not that inspiring to me, the good news is both of those turns come on the road. He's got San Diego at Petco. He's got Arizona on the road at Chase Field as well. And I get it. We're at the point in the season now, the calendar's about to flip to August. If you are still near the bottom in a rotisserie league with ERA and whip, you are now chasing wins and strikeouts. If you weren't sure about it for the late part of June and all of July, now is the time to start playing the game of just trying to get as many strikeouts and wins as you possibly can. And if you get lucky and make up some ground ratios, that's the best case scenario, I think, as you look at the final two months. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And as far as those options go, I like Sensatella more than more than Brad Keller, certainly more than Matt Manning for this week. If you're just talking about a short-term stream, trying to get some bulk innings, trying to get some wins. I mean, Sensatella is not going to be a great strikeout pitcher, but in a two-start week, he may help you a little bit there. Uh, the matchups are decent for him. And he is somebody, you know, where I expressed a little bit of skepticism about, about Matt Manning being able to manage contact well enough to, to churn out those quality starts. That is the kind of pitcher that Sensatella has been for long stretches at various times. So, yeah, I, I like him this week. Do you think Drew Smiley is among the Cubs that will be traded at the deadline? I don't think so, but it, I also don't see any reason why he wouldn't be. I guess that, the you know, it would be a team looking like just for an example, the Phillies looking for a number five starter. It would have to be that kind of situation, uh, you know, because he's not really going to be a difference maker in the postseason, uh, I, I don't think. So uh, he could be, but he would be, I think, you know, far from one of the more attractive uh, trade candidates that the Cubs have. Yeah, I think the dream scenario for Smiley again is to land with a contender and then be the extra guy in the bullpen. We saw that performance that was during the World Series, actually. It was against Houston where he came out and was really good and kind of helped helped Atlanta in a big way in that spot. He would have a start against the Marlins this week if he's not traded. That's what kind of brought the question up. And I think he would be a streamer otherwise. But the reason why I'm not pushing aggressively for that, I, I think he'll find his way to the roster. I, I think it's more likely than not that he's among those players that does, in fact, get moved. But Adrian Sampson catches that same matchup, and he does not seem likely to be traded. So if you're trying to pick on the Marlins, I think Adrian Sampson is your widely available cub 
that you can do that with. Uh, interesting here that Austin Voth is pitching well as a member of the Orioles. I think just leaving the Nationals, if you're a pitcher, is pretty much universally regarded now as a good thing. Well, yeah, you know, not a big trip uh, up 95 uh, outside the, the D.C. Beltway. But, uh, yeah, it seems to have made a difference. Uh, and, you know, with, yeah, the, the matchup he's got coming up uh, against the Pirates, worth worth a whirl in, in 15-teamers. I wouldn't go any shallower than that. He's a bottom-of-the-list sort of guy, like a min-bid sort of player, because there are still some in-start workload concerns. But I'm just willing to keep an open mind with both because everything has looked better since he got out of D.C. and has moved into this Orioles organization. A couple other guys that I think are interesting that aren't necessarily matchup-based plays. Jake Junis, who's been an up-and-down guy with the Giants so far this season, Al. I, the innings could be easier for him to come by in the final two months. It's possible they move Carlos Rodon at the deadline. I think the recent slide they've gone through has at least put that onto the table as something that maybe we wouldn't have thought about at all even a, a month or so ago. But even if they don't move Rodon, just to get to the finish line, I think Junis has a chance of being someone that chews up innings in five inning chunks for them. Yeah, that's a great call, and and do it effectively. So uh, I think he's uh, under rostered and somebody who it seems like there's been a lot of two start weeks, or maybe not a lot, but there have been some two start weeks for for Junis where he's looked like one of the best candidates to add. So why not just stash him on your bench and use him when he's got those two start weeks or, or some good matchups because he's he's useful that way. If you are desperate for pitching, I made this argument on Under the Radar a few days ago. Do you stash Hermann Marquez this weekend on the cheap? Hope the Rockies trade him, even though they probably won't, because expecting the Rockies to do the logical or the right thing is probably a bad idea. But do you just stash him away for a buck or a near-min bid, keep him on the bench? He's on the road this week if he's available, so you could probably throw him in a deeper league if you had to, and just see what happens, because... Imagine the scenario in which Herman Marquez were to get traded and he's available in your league. People would be excited about him again. If a good, smart team trades for Herman Marquez, I think people are going to want to roster him again. So why not get out ahead of that, given the ongoing challenge of finding high-quality starting pitching on the waiver wire? Well, you know, my perception of, of Marquez is that his problems are no longer Coors Field problems. And... um you know, last year, I think he, I think all the starters actually had better splits at home, which was just weird and inexplicable. Uh, but uh, I, I know that the, um, now I'll, I'll tell you what, he, he just had been so miserable earlier in the year that I haven't tracked how he's done the last few weeks. So maybe, maybe it's turned around for him, but earlier in the year, he just what was getting hit hard, wasn't missing bats. And I'm not sure that that would necessarily change with the location or at the very least, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how much of that is environment based. So I'd love to see it. I, I, you know, I, I have felt like for years that Marquez has been uh, underappreciated because of being a Rockies pitcher and, and has been useful for many, you know, many years in spite of it. So I'd love to see him go somewhere and, and have success and, and be rostered and appreciated in fantasy. But I'm not sure. I, I, I wonder if that window's been closed already. Yeah, that's a fair question to ask. I don't think the ceiling is as high as it used to be, but I do think there's still something there, and the Rockies would be better off making their organization better, dealing him now as opposed to eventually losing him for nothing once that contract eventually runs out. I know it's hard for them to get pitching, but they can't get the best out of Herman Marquez. Some other organization might be able to do that. Cole Irvin could benefit from a possible Frankie Montas trade in the short term simply because he could become a two-start pitcher. I think that's a really good point that you put on the rundown. Sometimes you just have a guy that gets that extra turn as a result of, of moves that are out of his control. Is Cole Irvin a good pitcher? It's a two-part question. It's really just one, one question. Is Cole Irvin a good pitcher? The ratios have been great. The K rate's low. Maybe other teams are interested in him to chew up some innings if, if, if the A's are willing to part with him. But what do you make of Cole Irvin at this point? I mean, a 305 ERA and a 104 whip in 109 in the third innings this season. Yeah, I've I've come around on Irvin because he's somebody where you know, I've just looked at the the contact rate and the low strikeout rate and not really seen something to to compensate for that that got me interested. But uh, and I wrote an extended piece for the Athletic on this, so if people want to you know see do see the deep dive. Uh, I came to the conclusion that that Irvin is a good pitcher and that he's got an ERA that's just barely above three right now. I think it's three point zero five, 
And sure, there'll be some regression, but I think over the last couple of months, I think he'll be like a 3.50 ERA pitcher, especially if he stays in Oakland, because I think that that ballpark does help him for the home starts. But uh, he doesn't give up very many uh, pulled flies. This is something that he has accomplished in both of his season with the A's, so it's not just like a, a small sample thing for him. Uh, so that combined with the park that he pitches in, he's not going to give up many homers. He is going to be able to manage contact in a way where he's not going to help you in strikeouts, but he is going to be able to give you the low ERA and, uh, and possibly a low whip. And as far as the two, the two start question, it's a little bit of a stretch, even though I'm the one who put it there because the A's would have to go with the four man rotation, but they can do it for two weeks with the days off that they have. So if they trade Montas, I don't see an, again, depends on who they get back. But as of right now, I don't see an obvious candidate to, to fill that vacancy and they wouldn't need, need to. And Irvin would be able to uh, pitch on uh, on five, day, five days rest on Tuesday and then come back on Sunday. And that to me absolutely makes him uh, uh, startable in 12 teamers. Yeah, could be a little more weekly value there if the A's decide to go down that path, Cole Irvin and their schedule for the upcoming week. Disco Dave has a question on the pitching front. Is it a good idea to get rid of Bundy or Lauer to add a middle reliever? If so, who would you look to add? I've been using Ronaldo Lopez as that filler for a while. He's on the IL right now. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a difference for me between Bundy and Lauer. I think Lauer is a little more rosterable than Bundy in most mixed leagues right now. I, I, the, the Dylan Bundy season we saw in 2020, Al, I mean, it was a pandemic-shortened year, and anybody can pitch well for 10 or so starts. It, it just looks like it was a, a pretty big outlier for Bundy. Like There would have been correction if that were a full season, and maybe he would have finished the year with a 4 ERA and a 125 whip, and that still would have been one of the better seasons we've seen in his career. But he has just not been the same guy in the time since. K-rate way down right now at a career low. So even though he's not walking as many guys as he used to, I don't think Dylan Bundy is useful outside of AL-only leagues at this point, and maybe for the occasional stream in a two-star week. Yeah, I'm with you there. I don't put Bundy and Lauer in the same category. And so it would, you know, give a different answer. With Bundy, absolutely, yes, I would substitute a middle reliever. And to throw out another name, I've been using Elijah Morgan in that role all season long. And it's it's helped a lot. So uh, he's somebody I would, would recommend. Uh, I'm not thinking of anybody else top of mind, but um, I think that would that would work. Uh, for Bundy, Lauer, I'd be really reluctant to do that. Thanks a lot for that question, Disco Dave. The other thing you could do is consider stashing some relievers. We know there's a handful of relievers that are likely to get moved. So the question really becomes who replaces them. I know that's something you talked about last Thursday. Greg Jewett was a guest on the show with you and Michael Beller. So you've been through this on the deep dive sort of level, but sort of refreshing this conversation just a little bit. David Robertson seems like one of the easiest relievers to put on a different team. I think the good news, if you have Roberts on your team right now, there's a handful of places, at least one or two, where he could be traded and still get a decent number of saves. So uh, I wouldn't you know, completely dismiss the possibility of him still retaining some fantasy value depending on where he goes. But I think the problem with the Cubs is that they could trade three different relievers all to deadline, and it would make perfect sense to me. So who are you stashing, if anyone, in the Cubs bullpen for saves for the final two months and change? Well, I've already added Scotty Frost to one league. I plan on bidding on him in others this weekend. He, to me, seems like the obvious candidate. He got a save, uh, I want to say, I think it was Monday when David Robertson had pitched in three out of four games. Uh, He's got uh, the highest um, leverage index over the last 30 days on the team other than Robertson and Stephen Brault, who's only pitched in a couple of games. Um, Yeah, it just seems like he's being positioned. To, to be the heir apparent and he's and he's earned even if he weren't positioned he's he's earned it in terms of performance yeah great results uh, not overpowering in terms of fastball velocity but does have three pitches goes fastball slider change out of the pen i think rowan wicks the other name that's sort of interesting has that more prototypical closer feel to the arsenal but does not have the great results that you might be looking for in that spot so i, I totally understand the case for efros i i think if I'm in an NL-only league or a really deep keeper league, I think Wick is also on the radar for me as a really low-cost ad that I'm going to take a look at for the week. I think the reliever that I want to stash through the weekend where available is Felix Bautista in Baltimore. 
even if they want to keep playing for this year, Jorge Lopez could be traded. And Bautista is filthy. We've seen him get a handful of saves this year. I know they've got a few other interesting relievers they could mix in. Dylan Tate could be a source of saves at some point. But to me, Bautista is just that that flamethrower that you really want to have out there for those last three outs. So if Lopez gets moved, I think Bautista is my clear favorite in Baltimore to take over. Yeah, I think there's a clearer path there than even like with Efros in, in Chicago. So that's, I think that's absolutely right. I have more doubt about that that position becoming vacant, but yeah, absolutely uh, is a possibility. Other situations that you think are very likely to have some closer turnover. I mean, Colorado with Daniel Bard would make sense to me, but I just don't think there's anyone else in that pen that I like enough to speculate. I think I'd rather just pay a little extra to know who it might be after a series and a half next weekend? I mean, do you see someone that really jumps off the page skills-wise in Colorado or or somewhere else that you want to try and stash away? Nobody in Colorado. Um, I'd say the the names that maybe, and, and you know, this is definitely a step below like Bautista and Efrost, but uh, in Arizona, maybe uh, Joe Mantiply. And I don't think Gregory Soto is going anywhere. But if he did, I think Alex Lang would be the pretty clear winner there. So assuming that Michael Fulmer was also sticking around, which I doubt he would be. Yeah, Fulmer seems likely to get traded. I know Joe Jimenez still has one more year of control left, but if you're a contending team, you'd love to get Jimenez right now. He's pitching really well this season. Uh, you'd have a shot at keeping him for next year too and, and possibly having that that upgrade for your bullpen beyond this year. So I, the Soto thing is is tough because I think he returns a lot more in a trade if the Tigers want to make a deal. It's just a question of whether or not someone's actually going to give them what they want to you know, commit to giving away a player that they would have for quite a long time. And I, I think they're in a tough spot in Detroit right now. That rebuild is not going well. They had a lot of injuries in the first half and just trying to choose a direction right now at the deadline. They could make some mistakes if they get too desperate to do something, right? Like, you know, probably in this mode where they're trying to save jobs and I, not a fun spot to be in right now. Anything else on your mind, Al, before we uh, before we go for the week? I don't think so. I think we've covered it all. I guess the, you know the only thing is just that a theme that I repeated in the the column this week is that for you know the the, the Corbin Carrolls and the the Shea Longoliers that my approach is going to be to to bid on those those folks this weekend even if there's no clear signs that they're coming up because it'll be less costly now than it will be if they do get called up later. Yeah, it's a free peek. I mean, if we're talking about a team where you've got six or seven bench spots, are you committing just one to two to these stashes? That's the thing. We talked for an hour about all these different guys, and you may have room for a couple. And if you're in a a keeper league, things are a lot different. I think you can be a little more aggressive if you're playing for next year in a keeper league, taking a chance on a handful of these players. But in most redraft situations, you can't grab all of these players. Yeah, Uh, a a message that we could probably repeat every week, uh, even though we'd like to. Uh, (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, make spot for one, maybe two, if if you can. Good luck on The Wire this weekend. If you want to check out Al's column, get a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. That gets you in the door for the first six months at just $1 a month. You can find Al on Twitter at BB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. 